Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a month-by-month look at the modern rock charts. Today, we're going to be talking about December of 1993, and here to help me out is my old friend, Dusty Hosley. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great, man. This is exciting. I've been meaning to have you on the show for a long time, and well, you know what? I want to talk a little bit about how I know you and, and what you're doing here on the show, but... I think it's always good to kick things off with some music. So we're going to be hearing the mystery achievement. Dusty, three points to you and three points to any listener who remembers this song from the lower reaches of the modern rock charts. This one hit number 28 in December of 1993. I do not know that song, not familiar to me at all. That sound of that band did sound a little familiar. That was Cowboy Junkies with Anniversary Song. This is a track off of their 1993 album, Pale Sun, Crescent Moon, which I got to say is a really strong album. Now, I wanted to, just for funsies, talk about my favorite musical memory I have of you. I think shortly after I had met you, uh, we were all at a house party I was doing some DJing. Dusty, your twin brother, I, I guess I should say, he found out that I had a specific album, and he calls me over. He says, I want you to put this song on, and we're going to watch Dusty across the room. And what's going to happen is he's going to be having a conversation with someone. He's going to be talking, and he's going to stop mid-conversation. You're going to see this, this light sparkle in his eyes. He's going to like tilt his head up a little bit. And then this big grin's going to like spread across his face as he realizes what it is. I won't yet say what song it was, but that artist is one of our very favorite artists. And what we would do is, without interrupting the conversation either one of us might have been in at the moment at the party, we just would have made eye contact. And that's all it took for us to both know what we were thinking, which is we recognize this song, we love this song, and... And that would be it, that just just eye contact. And Cody told you he was going to deny me that eye contact <laughs> for the duration <laughs> of the song. And that I probably would would exit my ongoing conversation <laughs> to come over finally to, yeah. to get Cody to recognize yeah. Why playing. won't he look at me? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the song is from a band that we've played, I think, once before on the show. This is from the Moog Cookbook. This is a cover of Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World. And uh, here's a clip. And of course, I played the song and exactly what your brother described. That's exactly what transpired. <laughs> we watched from across the I kept room. looking at him. <laughs> he would not look back. I, I just like, how could you not hear this? How could you not see this? What, what's going on? <laughs> and then oh. by the time I made it over to you two, you were just bent over double laughing. <laughs> yeah, it was a beautiful moment. And it, it made me a little sad that I did not have a twin of my own, you know, to share the psychic bond and the love of music with. Obviously, we have different 
tastes here and there, but in general, just our core music that we love is very shared, often identical, like us. <laughs> yeah. I guess we should talk briefly about what you're up to these days. You've veered away from music and into academia. Yeah, so I, I had studied religion in college and was particularly interested in religion and politics in the United States and the growing number of people who describe themselves as not religiously affiliated. And so I came to UC Santa Barbara and got a PhD in religious studies and, again, focused on contemporary American religion and specifically people who describe themselves as non-religious, secular, or spiritual, but not religious people. And I uh, wrote a dissertation on the Universal Life Church. Most people are familiar with that church because they can get ordained on the internet for free, and then they can officiate weddings for friends and family. And then I bounced around with a couple short-term gigs, and right now I'm an associate director of a center uh, for the study of ethics, religion, and public life at UC Santa Barbara. Okay. Well, very cool. Let's jump into some music. What do you say? Yeah, I love it. We're going to be talking about no number one hits today, because if you recall from last episode, the Lemonheads were on top of the charts through November and all of December. We're going to have to wait until 1994 before we get a new number one. So we're going to be looking at a few bands that almost got there, but not quite. And the first band we're going to talk about is James. Can I say it's a terrible name? It's a terrible name, isn't it? It's an awful name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a lame name. <laughs> <laughs> now, they've done very well for themselves with a terrible band name. This band was formed in Manchester, England in 1982, and actually went through a number of names early in their career. One of my favorites is probably Venereal and the Diseases. That's a great name. <laughs> so <laughs> arguably James is, is better than that one. I'm not sure. They went by Volume Distortion and Model Team, and eventually they just decided to name themselves after one of the band members. And so they could have just as easily been called Paul or Gavin or Tim, but they decided to go with James after their bassist, Jim Glennie. Venereal and the Diseases sounds like that should be a hardcore punk band, right? Yes. That sounds like a band that's playing in a very seedy dive situation. James sounds like, I don't know, some sort of second-rate Red Rocks. Sure. <laughs> now, the lead singer of the band, Tim Booth, he was not initially a member of the band. He was discovered dancing at a student disco, and I guess he was a pretty good dancer. And so the band asked him to dance for them during their shows. I've seen bands with that. I love that aesthetic. I love the idea that this person has an essential role to play, uh -huh. at least in the, the touring or concert version of the band. It's bringing more people in and giving audience scores uh, something more to look at, something to engage in, perhaps even to mimic. So I, I'm a big fan of the concept. Yeah. Now, before too long, Tim Booth was promoted from dancer to lead singer. Now, by 1992, James had hit the big time in the UK. Their song Sit Down became a number two hit, and their album Seven reached number two as well. Following that album, James went on tour in the US, opening for Neil Young. I love Neil Young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Neil Young's great. I heard it was a tough gig for them, though, because I think this was like an acoustic Neil Young tour, and they were not having a very good time opening for him. The crowds were not appreciating what James was doing. So partway through the tour, they switched over to playing their songs acoustically, and it forced them to learn how to play differently and expand their sound and start doing things that they had never done before. And when they emerged from that tour, they were a 
different, better band. You know, I'm not familiar with their earlier stuff, but what you're saying makes a lot of sense because the self-titled uh, album for Laid, that is an acoustic-driven song, and it's fantastic. Yeah. So when it came time to record their follow-up album, the band teamed up with producer Brian Eno, and the resulting album, Laid, was released in 1993. The title track became their biggest hit in the U.S., reaching number 61 on the Hot 100, number three on the modern rock charts, and helping the band eventually earn a gold record in the U.S. with 500,000 copies sold. Interestingly, though, Laid was viewed by the band as a throwaway track, which they thought was maybe good for a B-side, but Brian Eno pushed the band to add it to the album, and I don't know, I guess we should listen to it. Here is Laid, number three on the modern rock charts. You know, it's funny, from the U.S. context, I would say this band's a one-hit wonder, uh, and this is their hit. In the U.K., it you know sounds like they had more hits. Yeah, very successful. Yeah, it, it was interesting, because this is the only song I was familiar with them prior to preparing for this chat here. And i got to say, I've, I've always liked this song. It's not a favorite song of mine. Part of it felt sappy to me. I think that was my initial impression, but... It is a jubilant song. It is happy. It's upbeat. It's brilliant acoustic pop. You know, this driving acoustic guitar. I really like the propulsive drums right before yeah, the verses. Yeah, that kind of machine gun. Uh, do, 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 do. Yeah. Yeah, it drives it right in. It just, you know, it propels you into that next verse. I am not good with understanding or paying attention to lyrics. So <laughs> I had to read the lyrics for this. And whereas previously, I thought this song was just about sex or wanting to get laid, this sort of thing. I thought the lyrics were super interesting, kind of gender bending. And you see that on the cover of this album as well, men wearing Mm -hmm. dresses, eating bananas. You see that in the music video as well. So I thought it was a lot more transgressive and perhaps even about some sort of going to therapy and maybe wanting to be with oneself or the sexual object of desire is oneself. Something very interesting going on. It's not just about wanting to get laid. James continued releasing albums and doing very well for themselves in England. I think every single that they released up until Tim Booth left the group in 2001 charted in the UK, which is pretty great. Wow. They never became much more than a cult act in the US, though, and they never charted again over here, which explains why you are not familiar with any more of their music. Tim Booth rejoined the band in 2007, and they've been going strong ever since. Their most recent album was 2023's Be Opened by the Wonderful. New album coming out in April with one of the worst album titles I've ever heard, Yummy. Yeah, so we got something to look forward to, depending on your feelings about James, I guess. (laughs) I'll skip it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're uh, going to go slightly lower on the charts. We're going to hear from a band called Smashing Pumpkins. This band was formed in Chicago in 1988. The classic lineup is Billy Corgan, James Eha, Darcy Retsky, and Jimmy Chamberlain. Their previous album, Gish, was 
I think, more successful than anticipated, and it increased expectations for the band. So the the Pumpkins went into the studio to record a follow-up. Butch Vig came back on board as a producer. And this time around, their recording budget had increased from about $20,000 to more than $250,000. So you can get a sense of what was on the line, not just for the band, but for their record label. If you throw a quarter of a million dollars at a band just to let them record, like that's a lot of pressure. You're going to want to hit. Yeah. <laughs> so tensions were high during the recording sessions, at least in part because Billy wanted to play most of the instruments other than drums himself. That's a pretty well-told tale, but I think it's maybe only half true. I think it would be fair to say that quite a bit of the music press had it in for Billy <laughs> for some reason or another. So there were a lot of articles written about Billy Corgan's tyrannical leadership and, you know, how he was ruling the rest of the band with an iron fist and that sort of thing. But I've read from some of the other band members that maybe the bigger reason that Billy Corgan was playing most of the instruments was that he was a better musician and the studio time was so expensive that he was able to lay down the tracks much faster than the other band members. So he could nail the part in three takes, whereas James Eha or Darcy might have taken 15 or 20 takes to do the same thing. I also believe he may be a perfectionist. Uh, controlling can sometimes be a behavior that also is connected with his obsessive need to have each piece perfect as he envisions it. And if he's trying to communicate that to a band member and they're not hitting it exactly the way he's hearing it in his head, then I can imagine, especially with you know, a accomplished musician like him, uh, wanting to step in and say, actually, I'm going to just do the guitar myself. I'm going to do the bass myself. Yeah, absolutely. Now, on top of this, Jimmy Chamberlain was struggling with drug addiction at the time. James Eha and Darcy had been in a romantic relationship and recently broken up. Billy was suffering from depression. And from what I heard, Billy and Butch Vig were working crazy, crazy long hours, often to the point of exhaustion. So... This was uh, a difficult experience for the band, I imagine. And by the time the album was finished four months later, they were $250,000 over budget. That being said, this album was met with near universal acclaim upon its release, and it sold over 4 million copies in the U.S. alone. So they did what I guess they needed to do, and it worked out. The label got their money's worth and then some. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I, and I imagine that, you know, Billy got more or less what he was looking forward to. He was putting it all into this album, and I think it really shows. I know this album very, very well, because I think, as I mentioned last episode, this was one of the first few CDs that I got through BMG Music Club. It arrived on the exact same day that I got August and Everything After by Counting Crows. And I never heard a single song by either band, so... The first time I listened to it, I, I took them to a friend's house. They hadn't even been opened out of the plastic. And my friend basically took the County Crow CD and tossed it aside and was like, we don't need to listen to this. Oh. <laughs> and I'm not dissing County Crows. I really like that album a lot. <laughs> but she was more excited about Smashing Pumpkins. She tore it open, threw it on her CD player. And she's like, you got to listen to this. This is amazing. And I got to say, I was not immediately astounded because I was not super familiar with a lot of alternative music or a lot of music in general at that point and so this was a very intense sound to me it was abrasive i didn't know what to make of billy corgan's voice the sonics were just 
they just seem crazy. I'm like, is there a song somewhere in here? I, I have no idea what I'm listening to. But it did not take long for me to completely change my mind. This is a fantastic album. It's full of great, great songs, full of really, really interesting musical parts. Well, we're going to hear the second single from the album. It's called Today. It's a deceptively lovely song about suicidal ideation and depression. So here it is, Today. listening to this that opening little line and then it kind of builds up kind of a, a loud wall of sound and then it quiets down again and the song itself follows that structure throughout kind of crescendos and then quiet and then crescendos it builds cyclically in a way that's both you know, sweet and then aggressive or kind of sincere and ironic at the same time which i think is exactly the kind of thing gen x right all about authenticity and also all about irony uh, mm-hmm. It's sarcasm. And here, you know, the kind of the irony of today is the greatest day that I've ever known. And it's filled with depression and suicidal thoughts, even though it's also got this very sweet, tender hearted, beautiful melody with this dark undertone at the same time. So I, I love the contrasts throughout the song. And I think that's both musically, lyrically, emotionally. I think that's what, for me anyway, makes this song great. Yeah, I agree. I'll say this, though, about Smashing Pumpkins. When I started getting into this music finally, and I was was purchasing a few of my own CDs and tuned into alternative radio, you know, I connected with Nirvana and Pearl Jam and even Stone Temple Pilots and Soundgarden and all this stuff. But Smashing Pumpkins, there was something there that connected a little more to me because a lot of those other bands, they were either macho or angry or dark and druggy in a way that I didn't really understand or that didn't mean a lot to me. And Smashing Pumpkins, they sound similar in a lot of ways, but it's not really angry. It's more like hurt. You know what I mean? It's like hard on your sleeve. And even if Billy is, you know, screaming and yelling here and there and the guitars are blasting, it feels like this is music from an uncool kid who's had a hard time. And a lot of that other music felt like music from cool kids. (laughs) I don't know if that sounds right to you, but... Yeah, no, I think so. The Outsider, Misunderstood, Picked On, and being in your bedroom with guitar was one place that you could find yourself, express yourself. No one's picking on you in there. You can be creative. You can write out your feelings, and you can play them. And he's got, even this song here, what's that, that one bent string, you know, during this song that just bends it so far and transitions the song 
I think emotionally from a place that aggressive and then there's I don't know some yearning in that one string being bent out of tune. We're going to hear plenty more from Smashing Pumpkins in the future on this show. <laughs> the band did very well for themselves. Although at some points the band just became Billy Corgan and the other members of the band have been kind of in and out. At this point, I want to say three original members are in the band. Last time I checked anyway. They've continued to release a lot of new material over the years. Most recently, Smashing Pumpkins have released a three-act rock opera uh, released between 2022 and 2023. So, still an active band. Clearly, some things within him that he wants to express, and he's got the money and the time to do it. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to keep moving down the list. We're going to hear from a band we haven't talked about before. This is Dead Can Dance. They were formed in Melbourne, Australia in 1981, but were based in London for most of their career. I read that they're described as a neoclassical dark wave band, although I don't really have a clue what that means. Me either. (laughs) (laughs) The only constant members of the band are Lisa Gerard and Brendan Perry. And the band has been described as combining elements of European folk music, particularly from the Middle Ages and Renaissance, with ambient pop and world beat flourishes, and maybe throwing in some Gregorian chant and avant-garde and whatever else they feel like throwing in there. Now, Gerard and Perry were a couple, but they split up in 1989 and moved to different continents, but continued to make music together. For the band's sixth album, called Into the Labyrinth, Gerard and Perry wrote music individually, and then they met up in Ireland to try to join their compositions together. Half of these songs are in English. The other half are sung using a self-created wordless vocal technique, sort of like glossolalia. Speaking in tongues, glossolalia, it's, you know, when you're moved by the Holy Spirit and you're not speaking foreign languages that are actual languages spoken in other countries, but speaking language and phrases or words uh, could just be guttural that is not a human language as known so somehow the spirit is moving through you and you are captured by the spirit and thrown in the spirit and then these phrases or words or languages come out yeah and it makes me curious whether that means that these lyrics were written ahead of time as sort of a spoken in tongue language and then written down and then brought into the studio or if they were improvised on the spot while recording I'd be curious to know. Yeah, me too. Because at some point, I imagine she has to annotate that in some fashion to re- reproduce it for records or concerts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, they record and they, she has to play it back and listen to it hundreds of times to like memorize what the sounds were she was making. Or maybe uh, maybe every, every time they play the songs, it's different lyrics. In the moment, as the spirit moves her. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know, if, anyone, if any listeners know the answer to that, I, I'd be curious to know. But this album became a big success, at least for you know, a, an indie New Agey album, and it sold over 500,000 copies. And we're going to hear the song The Ubiquitous Mr. Lovegrove. It was named after an episode of the show Danger Man, which was also called Secret Agent. Uh, this was a British spy show that was sort of like a James Bond ripoff. Now, as far as I can tell, this song has nothing to do with Danger Man or Secret Agent or whatever, or Patrick McGowan in any, any conceivable way. I don't know why it's called this. Maybe they just thought it was a fun name. But let's listen to it. Here is the ubiquitous Mr. Lovegrove. 
into the band through Lisa Gerard and her work on the Gladiator soundtrack. Oh, okay. Uh, 2000. And so I loved that soundtrack and her voice. And she does that same kind of ethereal language. So, and then learned that she's in this band called Dead Can Dance, which is, oh, okay. I recognize having seen that name, not never hearing the music. At that point I was uh, working at a college radio station and was familiar with the 4AD label and knew mm-hmm. that, you know, Dead Can Dance is central to that label's identity, I think, and their sound. And so got a little bit into Dead Can Dance. A friend of mine was a huge fan of theirs. I listened to some of it. I, I liked it. I understood it. I respect it. But I just didn't love it. Didn't catch me. Didn't draw me in the same way. This track as well, I actually like the lyrics better than I think. I like some of the, the music for this song, although I, it's not bad. It just doesn't speak to me. So I want to spend more time with it. I want to listen to this record and listen to more of this band just to, to learn more, but it doesn't ring my bell. I feel similarly. And I think we talked about this maybe a, a few seasons back when Enigma had a big hit with Sodness Part 2 or whatever it was called. There seems to be this market for songs kind of like this, world music-ish, kind of dark, new agey. But whatever that market is, they seem to be buying like one CD a year. (laughs) And then all of them buy that CD. And this was a phenomenon where it'd be like, nothing from that genre is really charting. And then this Enigma album comes out and sells 5 million copies. And I don't know if you remember the, there was like the Gregorian chants. Santo Domingo de Silas. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. These are all albums my dad bought. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's bizarre to me. Like there was just a, a huge market for this music, but not enough to sustain more than like one or two hit albums a year. But, you know, the other interesting thing about a song, specifically this song, this ubiquitous Mr. Lovegrove, it maybe speaks to something unusual that you've spoken about on this podcast, the modern rock charts and what music gets included in that bucket. Yeah. This is not a track I would have imagined as a modern rock track, and yet here it is charting on this chart. Sure. That's cool. All right. Well, Dead Can Dance... They continued for a while. They split up. They got back together. Uh, And very recently, in 2022, they canceled a tour due to unspecified health problems. I don't know any more details than that, but they've stated that no new music or tours can be expected in the future. So they held on for a long time. At this point, it looks like the band is finished and we've heard the last of them. We are going to hear from one more band and we have to go way down the charts for this one. Blur are Damon Alburn, Graham Coxon, Alex James, and Dave Roundtree. They formed in London in 1988. And the last time we heard from them, they were having a dismal time touring the U.S. They were facing some backlash after their 
debut album came out and they were frequently being called out as bandwagon hoppers in the shoegaze scene by the British music press. Things were not looking great for the band. However, a couple important things happened during the U.S. tour. First was that Damon Albarn was finding himself very homesick and he was missing a number of quintessentially English things that were unavailable to him in the U.S. And he later stated that his only pleasant memory from the entire U.S. tour was listening to the Kinks' Waterloo Sunset repeatedly on the tour bus. That's an amazing song. It is an amazing song, yeah. So upon returning to England, maybe feeling a bit dejected and deflated, Blur discovered that the band Suede was being hailed as the next big thing by the British music press. And whether this was due to jealousy or a competitive spirit, Damon Albarn decided that he couldn't handle Suede being a bigger, more successful band than them. And uh, he decided to take his band Blur in a new direction, a very British direction, heavily inspired by the kinks and the jam and the small faces and early who. And his label thought that the band was committing artistic suicide, but the band went ahead with it anyway. And when they finished the album, their record label sent it back to them. They said, you need to write more hit singles. And amazingly, Damon Albarn did. He sat down on Christmas Day and he wrote For Tomorrow, which is not the song we're going to hear, but if you don't know it, it rules. <laughs> it's a great single. And then the band's American label, SBK, said, still not enough hits. We want you to go write another hit. And we also want you to record with Nirvana's producer and Smashing Pumpkins producer, Butch Vig. And Blur said, we're not going to record with Butch Vig. We don't want to sound more American. But we will write another hit song. And that song was the one we're going to hear right now called Chemical World. So at the record label's request, they added two phenomenal radio singles. It was a good album without those songs, but it's a great album with them. The final album is called Modern Life is Rubbish, although the working title was Britain versus America. And here it is. This one only reached number 27 in the U.S. on the modern rock charts, Chemical World. The police tried to pass into the country, although she got herself rosy cheeks. She didn't leave enough money to pay the rent. The landlord says that she's out in a week. What a shame, she was just getting comfy. Now she's eating chocolate, doing juice stick in a chemical world. It's very, very, very cheap. And I don't know about you, but they're putting the The intro to this song, mm-hmm. it's phenomenal. It catches your attention right away. I love the verses. I'm intrigued by the non-rhyming lyrics, or, you know, at the ends of each line don't rhyme, uh, which is counter often to expectation and what typically happens. But also, you know, just a very clear consumerist critique. And this is, you know, right around the time Adbusters, you know, the magazine is taking off and culture jamming. So I just thought this fit of a piece 
of where I was headed, I think politically and socially. And uh, it was nice to see that that kind of conversation was happening across the Atlantic. Yeah. And it, I do think it's fascinating that neither of these singles, Chemical World or For Tomorrow, performed astoundingly well. Both of them stalled out at number 28 in the UK. You know, if they were like a new band and no one ever heard of them, that would kind of make sense to me. But their previous album had a top 10 single in the UK, and, and the previous album went to number seven over there. This album only went to number 15. So it's really curious to me that we've got a better album, a more interesting album. We've got songs that sound like top shelf, radio friendly, but also artistically interesting songs. And they're not doing as well. It's it's not what you would call a flop, but certainly not the success that they were looking for. I don't think the, the UK audiences were ready for it yet. I think it, not until Park Life came out that, that then they could look back at this record and say, oh, wow, there's treasure here, there's gold here. And they weren't able to see it yet because they were expecting more of the same, more of that first album. Exactly, yeah. And uh, Blur at this point, they went, and just so quickly from being just one more sort of shoegazy pop band to ahead of the curve, setting the trends. And you're right, the music listening public had not caught up to the band at this point. They were that far ahead. That's no, one for the ages. And you know, both For Tomorrow and uh, Chemical World are phenomenal. And it's, it's just, it likewise, boggles my mind that they didn't make it onto the radio, that they didn't, in the U.S., didn't get enough attention. Obviously, they charted here with Chemical World, but there should have been so many more. This should have been a band that's featured uh, you know, a dozen times on the modern rock charts. Uh, yeah. We're going to hear from Blur again. By the time their next album rolled around, England had figured it out. They're going to briefly become one of the biggest bands in the UK, figureheads of the Britpop movement. America, as we said, is not going to figure it out until Blur swerves again and goes into a darker indie rock territory. But that's a story for a future episode, I guess. Blur called it quits some time ago, and then after a long hiatus... This surprise album came out last year, I think. The Ballad of Darren? Yeah, The Ballad of Darren. So Blur, I guess in some sense, is still a band. I'm not going to rule out that we'll hear more music from Blur in the future, but I wouldn't expect anything anytime soon. Oh, I would just say about Blur, you know, they put out an album called 13, I think in 1999, and it had a song called Tender on it, and I love that song. It kind of has a world music piece to it and a choir. It does not sound anything like any of those earlier albums. And I think it's kind of this transition point for Damon's other musical career of world music. And you brought up Tender. Tender was a a big hit in the UK. It went to number two, but obviously didn't chart over here. I'd be willing to bet that there's quite a few listeners who are not familiar with it. And I don't mind if we go out this episode with Tender. I think that's a, a cool song to hear, and it's cool to hear the difference between Britpop era Blur and their next phase of their career. So we'll wrap things up, and then uh, we'll send you all out on Tender. Beautiful. It definitely feels over the course of listening to this podcast, I've been listening since your, your first episode, mm-hmm. that it was very wild at the beginning. Lots of bands I wasn't particularly familiar with. Uh, maybe at bands... I'd heard their names, but I hadn't listened to their music. And so it was really an education, not only about kind of what's charting, but for me to listen to that music. Because when you have an episode, I, I always listen to those songs and sometimes check out those bands. 
and then now we're getting into you know ninety three ninety four and it's you know it's mostly stuff I recognize. It does make me wonder though, like are we reaching the point where the podcast isn't necessary because <laughs> i I'm right there no. with you like like I didn't know so many of the earlier songs, and we're getting to this point where it's like not only do I know them, but I own every single album and I've owned them for going on thirty years and Part of the joy here is, is that I, I feel like I'm introducing a lot of people to some music that's really cool that maybe they haven't heard before. And now I, I'm worried, like, <laughs> here's some songs you've heard a thousand times. No, but I think you clearly have this passion for music. And I'm sure a lot of your fans do, too. Of course, that's why they're listening to this podcast. But you telling the story of these bands, telling the story of these songs within the trajectories of those bands, telling the story of this modern rock chart. And so I think it's essential to be revisiting those songs and revisiting those songs as part of this history. I think that's what makes this podcast so unique and special is it's also for, yes, now for those of us familiar with these songs. It's a way to relive and re-enjoy those songs. But I I know that you also have fans who did not live through this time and who are learning. And so I think it's great for them to hear these tracks as they come out. And I'm, I'm sure there's a much longer story here. How do we get from Dead Can Dance to later uh, Kid Rock and Limp Bizkit on the same chart? So there's a story there, and right now it's a story where we're getting blur and smashing pumpkins, and we're going to get so much more down the road. Well, you've convinced me. I was all ready to call it quits, <laughs> but you know what? The people need me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. We need you. All right. Well, thanks again, Dusty. This was a real pleasure. It was uh, a lot of fun to talk to you and share music thoughts with you. We should do this more often, even if not on the podcast. If anyone wants to write in and ask questions or send some comments my way, if you want to just say hi, I'd love to hear from you. You can all reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Anyone who has not already done so, it'd be great if you could rate, review, or subscribe to this podcast. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Happy 1993. Here's Tender by Blur. Tender is the night, lying by. Tender is the touch of someone that you love too much. Tender is the day the demons go away.